Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our loved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Franklin Irwin Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. And it is uh, the ending now of uh, Climate Action Week put on by Fridays for Future and there is a major protest happening in an hour. That is true. And Stefan will be interviewing uh, Ali Rougeau from Fridays for Future exactly at the end of this program at 11.40, right? That is correct. Sweet. All right, so we're going to start off right now with uh, Julie Payette's, Justin Trudeau's excellent throne speech yesterday. It would have been two days ago, and excellent is certainly relative. On Wednesday the 23rd. So, uh, engineer, scientist, and former astronaut Julie Payette presented the annual throne speech uh, as the sitting governor general on Wednesday, the 23rd of September, to outline the minority liberal government's intentions for the coming term. She began, of course, by citing the invisible enemy, COVID-19, saying that hope lifts our souls on hard days and that Canadians are defined by two things— looking after each other, and good old common sense. She then gave the four foundations of the government's plan for the coming year. These are protecting people from COVID-19, helping people survive the economic hardships it has and will continue to cause, building back better, and remembering who we are. And who we are is an inclusive society that centers human rights and tolerance and so forth. The Liberals will try to strengthen the middle class through jobs and clean growth and continuing their financial assistance uh, through CERB and wage subsidies through next summer and will launch a campaign to create over one million jobs, partially through investing heavily in training and incentives. Indeed, they vow to make the largest investment in workers' training in Canadian history, but they did not say specifically what kind of training it would be. They also want to create a Canada-wide early learning and childcare system, and they have vowed to do whatever is needed in the short term to keep everything functioning. In the long term, they are looking to what they have called a sustainable approach, which will include new taxes on extreme wealth and going after web giants. And they say there will be an update to their fiscal policy as a whole sometime in the fall. They also plan to improve health care and long-term care. On the environmental front, they plan to invest in public transit, retrofits, and clean energy, and they say that housing and nutritious food are things that everyone deserves. They say that climate action is the cornerstone of their one million jobs plan because, quote, this is where the world is going. They plan to exceed their 2030 climate goals, legislate net zero by 2050, create thousands of jobs in retrofitting homes and buildings, invest in reducing the impact of climate disasters, make zero emissions vehicles more affordable, build more charging stations, um, mine nickel and copper for batteries? Well, I, I believe begin the process to, yes, we already do mine some nickel and copper. I think the idea is that you would develop that into a more fulsome, also actually creating batteries within Canada as well, was my understanding. Okay. Manufacturing batteries. Uh, cut the corporate tax rate in half for clean tech organizations. Create a clean power fund to support clean energy and connect clean power to places moving off of coal. Continue pricing pollution. Federally protect a quarter of Canadian land and water. Expand urban parks. Plant two billion trees. Ban harmful single-use plastics. Expand recycling. Modernize the Environmental Protection Act. Create a new water agency and continue to grow Canada's ocean economy. I don't know what that means, but maybe you can tell me later. They said, quote, Canada cannot reach net zero without the know-how of the energy sector and it will continue to support the energy sector. Payette finished his speech by iterating a commitment to tackling systemic racism, getting clean drinking water in First Nations communities, implementing UNDRIP, and promising to incarcerate fewer black and indigenous people, or else to incarcerate more whites to even it out. I'm not sure what, what uh, 
she implied there. She said the liberals had a, quote, ambitious plan for an unprecedented reality, and that in the midst of a fragmenting global order, we will work globally towards a vaccine, and that uh, protecting each other is our number one priority, and that we have to have the courage to reach for a better future. Yeah, so the, the first takeaway is that if you trust the liberals, there could be some very good things in this speech. And, and perhaps that is the constantly true thing about, about the liberals, is that if you trust them, they're constantly telling you great things. The, the, obviously, the most obvious example here is they are literally re-trotted out their two billion trees suggestion, which existed last year, and not a single tree has yet to be planted. And so, you know, everything's with a grain of salt. Now, that being said... You know, when they say climate is the cornerstone of creating a million jobs, just how cornerstone are we talking? You know, is this a 500,000 person jobs guarantee that actually, you know, gives that number of people jobs working towards a, you know, a green future? Or is that just a number where they put a bunch of money into training and presume people will get into tech jobs and call those clean? Either one is possible given this speech. You know, they did include retrofits as a part of the expected infrastructure spend, uh, which could mean you see them at a very large scale. You know, they said they create thousands of jobs. Now, is that thousands? Is that tens of thousands? Or, you know, this is still, again, not enough information to really go on. But if you trust them, there is some there is some reason to be hopeful. You know, they have immediate plans to exceed the woefully inadequate 2030 climate goal, which, again, great. What does immediate mean? And what will those plans be? Are they good? Are they bad? We don't know yet. Uh, there was, you know, support for the Atlantic Loop, which is a way to allow for Eastern Canada to get off coal, which is one of the fastest ways to reduce emissions in a serious way and and improve energy infrastructure. Uh, that would be, you know, obviously important. But again, what does that look like? How much support actually is actually going out there? And there's, they said there'll be new revenue tools that will include taxing the rich, which I'm counting as a climate policy because, as we've seen time and time again, the more money the rich people ha- rich people have, there that's a much more carbon intensive dollar than the dollar that goes to anybody else. And so those are all some good news, or could be good news again, with with the caveat. Uh, but to you, I have more thoughts. But to you, Lauren. No, I mean, you really, really sort of like encapsulated it and and hit the nail on the head there. Um, Throughout this very long speech, I believe it was 54 minutes, which is longer than the average uh, speech from the throne. uh, We did hear some really good language. We heard phrases like build back better and just recovery being thrown out there. Um, We heard exciting words like pharmacare and wealth tax and national childcare program, which are all very exciting things. But like you said, because this is just a preliminary throne speech, we don't actually know what any of these programs entail. So for instance, like something that could be really fantastic um, is the, there's a, there's a tax break that was mentioned um, for, that would be something like 50% for clean energy companies on the surface. That sounds like it's a good idea. It's, it's a subsidization for clean energy companies. That being said, anytime I hear something like tax break for a corporation, I kind of get my hackles up. And then also we do have to remember that one of the largest providers of clean energy, renewable energy technology in this country, at least is Suncor, um, who is decidedly like not a clean energy company, but because they are an energy company that does provide clean energy assets and does have clean energy product projects. I wonder if they're a company that would qualify for this 50% tax cut under this policy. Um, so, so, so there are things like that where we've kind of been given a bit of a taste and it's definitely been presented in a really palatable, really fantastic light, but how it actually plays out in the future, if these things play out at all kind of remain to be seen and we can't really pass judgment on them till then. Um, because again, with, with the liberals, like we've both said a couple times at this point, they always know how to speak really well. They always know how to present us with what we want. Um, and they don't always deliver. And I mean, I think like the thing that I will always go back to, the thing that always seemed to burn the worst was, was when we were promised electoral reform 
in the first Trudeau election several years ago. And then that, that we, we know for a fact, we're never getting that from this liberal government. So, um, a lot of really good words, um, on, on the surface, probably the most quote unquote progressive throne speech we've ever heard with the most quote unquote progressive policies touched on or mentioned. Um, and I mean, if nothing else, probably a really, really good thing that this was definitely the most um, watched throne speech that we've seen, at least in recent decades. Um, but in terms of passing a judgment on it wholesale, I don't think we can do that yet. Yeah, I'll say that the rejection of austerity off the top uh, certainly was a positive. Um, and but the, but I do have some other questions, you know, like they mentioned the fact that there's going to be some continued support for a price on pollution, but no real message of actually increasing that price of pollution or or what that sort of leads to. You know, they sort of mentioned that they're still going to do it. I will say that we should definitely cover maybe next week, if not the following weeks, the the Supreme Court battles going on right now where provinces are basically arguing that the carbon tax should not be allowed or the price on carbon should not be allowed. Uh, if you want to follow that, I highly recommend following uh, Fatima Syed, who is uh, from formerly National Observer and then The Logic, and but currently covering uh, just on Twitter uh, out of her own interest the the proceedings and you know the most in depth coverage I've seen at least on that topic. Uh, but we will get to that as the it's it's the only first or second day right now, so the, that will continue. But I will say this is not exactly the grand vision that we hoped for. You know, there there is a a lot of good things here. And maybe honestly, that is actually by design. And that's the question I maybe have the most is if they had come out and said, look, we're just going to reshape the Canadian ecosystem. Like, you know, we heard things like that they were going to, you know, fundamentally shift the the the, the, the social um supports in Canada. We heard things like $100 billion for, for climate was on the table. We heard all of these things that we sort of heard. And, and either this was an intentionally toned down speech to make it not seem like they actually had such grand visions, or they don't. And, and like, you know, for those of us who, who see a society that desperately needs a grander vision, that's a little disappointing. But and again, it comes back. To, I think it comes back to this question about whether or not you you trust trust the liberals to be you know re- following what uh, what civil society and and Canadians seem to be demanding. I, I guess I guess to that point, um, I mean, if they did tone it down a little bit, specifically because they wanted to get approval from other parties, right off the bat, we've seen rejection from the conservatives and likely rejection from the bloc. So, I mean. I'm I'm doubtful that that was their methodology just because we know the liberals are the party of incrementalism. They they tend to avoid big scary I would say exciting policy changes. Um but that being said it's like I think I think we we are seeing a bit of an embrace of at least some of the maybe not the big grand transformational things that that we would all like to see but but we are seeing snippets of that. Um we we we've heard mention of things like UBI in recent weeks and keeping CERB going, um, and and even stuff like I don't know. There's a bit of a change in in some of the language that that uh, Pyatt was using. I mean, in the past, I know during like the Catherine McKenna era of Environment Climate Change Canada, the phrase was always like the environment and the economy go hand in hand. And this time we heard kind of different language being used. I think we heard, I have it written down somewhere, we're going to fight climate change and be fiscally sustainable. So even the fact that we're like, we're, we're, we're hearing some different trigger words there could, yes, could potentially signal a bit of a sea change, a bit of a sea change. That's it's either a sea changer it's not (laughs) yeah i i i I clocked that too actually that that immediate like and then um, that immediate flip to fiscal conservatism that half second in that one two phrase i thought was particularly confusing i guess is the word i would use uh and i guess the 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 last major thought i have uh, which i think you'll have some thoughts on too is that ultimately and the response from civil society or response from sort of the people who've been calling for just recovery has largely been at least in the early days of this of this speech uh you know last few days i say early hours in reality because we recorded this on wednesday 
is really just this one phrase of like, okay, you've said things, but an action is really all that matters. You know, like what, like at this point, you can say everything you want, but until it's in a law and you're doing it, we're not buying it. And and to me, that ends up being the that ends up being sort of the rallying cry for those of us who want to see action for the next you know for the next few months is okay, we you know we buy into this concept of some of these visions. Let's see see you put this to paper and put real money behind it, you know, or else you're you're just you know this is electoral form and you know it's meaningless. Yeah, it's a very healthy and like very warranted degree of skepticism. And I think we're going to find out really, really quickly if if the liberal government has has meant what they've said um, in this throne speech. Because, for instance, like they stated that UNDRIP would be fully implemented by the end of 2020. That gives us what, like four, four months, four months until the end of the year for them to fully implement UNDRIP. And there's been a lot of pushback from from conservative members of parliament before. So I guess it's like we're going to find out really quickly if they did, in fact, mean business when they made all these promises um, or if it was all just nice poetry yeah. and and empty and emptiness. And if I can give one uh, final shout out before we go to our segment, the highlight unquestionably of the entire experience was that during the monotonous 55 minutes of colonial unreasonableness that precedes a throne speech, which I was not aware of, that when Trudeau had to stand for the national anthem and all you could hear were protesters in the back yelling, stand up, fight back, uh, and, and, and beating their drums. And, and then at the moment he's standing there, I believe someone yells out, you know you're on stolen land or something around those lines. And you heard it so perfectly on CBC that, you know, frustratingly, CBC decided to do nothing about this. Like they didn't talk at all about why the protests may be there. They literally said, oh, I think there might be protesters and moved on with their planned programming. But that moment to me, like given that you said it was one of the most watched speeches ever and probably people like me started watching at two o'clock, you got that moment of like, so this is a bit, you know, you are still ignoring these issues and they are going to follow you around quite literally, Trudeau. Mm hmm. And, and like last minute further to that point, any any of the good things that have come out of this throne speech, any any of the good things that we might see going forward, we know are simply because there are people like those who were outside in front of parliament today demanding these changes to happen. None of this, none of this rhetoric is out of the goodness of, of Justin Trudeau's heart. It is entirely because people have been demanding and asking for these things over the last months and years. And now we are going to turn to China, Governor Gavin Newsom of California, and the Global Biodiversity Outlook, released from the UN several days ago. So Chinese President Xi Jinping recently called uh, for a green revolution at the UN General Assembly reiterating China's plan to achieve peak emissions before 2030 and announcing that China would reach carbon neutrality by 2060. Xi is quoted by Al Jazeera as saying that China will scale up its intended nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement by adopting more vigorous policies and measures, and all countries should pursue a green recovery of the world economy in the post-COVID era. And the same outlet quotes a Greenpeace uh, climate diplomacy expert, Li Shuo, as saying that it shows that Xi is still leveraging the climate agenda for geopolitical purposes. Yeah. So I've said this before, and it's like one of my more out there takes that I'm, if I'm ever right about, I will... Uh, will be stoked about, not, well, I will not actually, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this belief, actually, but it is a belief I hold, which is that I would certainly not be surprised to see China take a lead in creating a global carbon market. You know, I could totally see China, you know, use its influence in, its, in, 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 you know, in its area, in, in the places it has currently influence, and then growing that to become a global a carbon market because there's so much, they have a head start on so much of the manufacturing required for a green uh, for uh, for a green tech uh, revolution and also it would be a very easy way for them to sort of increase their their geopolitical power 
And so like part of this is me hoping and wishing that sort of the more democratic states of the world, although, you know, democracy literally hangs in the balance right now. So maybe, you know, time will tell. But I would certainly prefer to see the more democratic states in the world get ahead of this and actually begin to build their own carbon markets that can be, you know, that would have a way to sort of price carbon. And again, I'm not, this is not me saying that pricing carbon is the only solution, but I do think that they are, that this is a part of a solution, certainly. And so I, again, I, I, this, this new plan could have uh, multiple effects, but that's one thing I'm looking out for. I think that really, I think you could expect to see if they could find some more allies in this, you could see China having, creating a global carbon market, uh, as exactly, you know, exactly as Lee Shou said, as a way to use the climate agenda, you know, for geopolitical purposes. Yeah. Um, so this new target being released is part of this kind of new wave of nationally determined contributions or, or NDCs that we're going to see coming out in the coming months and like up to a year. Um, because uh, theoretically, countries are supposed to be getting in their new NDCs by the end of 2020 in preparation for um, COP26 happening next year in England. It was it was pushed a year, if people recall. Um, so I, I think, although um, uh, a carbon neutrality by 2060 is certainly too late by at least a decade. What this does hopefully signal is um, large sort of like global hegemonic heavy hitters really starting to come to the table and take climate change somewhat seriously in a way that we haven't necessarily seen them take it seriously in the past. From what I understand, this is China kind of going on the record with a goal for the first time. And even if that goal isn't exactly what we would like it to be, um, there's still a lot of gravity that comes with it. Uh, and I and I do think you're right, Stefan, or David, Stefan, sorry. I'm looking at both of your faces right now. Stefan, you are, I think you're accurate in the assessment you're making about, like, I think this could signal a moment where we really see China, although it is already a global superpower, really um, gaining some ground here, especially if, fingers crossed, heaven forbid, knock on wood, Trump is elected again in November, and the states really does pull out of the Paris Agreement and really does totally abandon climate action entirely. I think we really, really will see uh, China sort of step in to fill that void on a global stage um, in the way that you predicted, especially because sort of like uh, in, a, in a piece I was reading from the New York Times, it was kind of a bit of an explainer on this. I don't think I realized um, quite how well China is primed and positioned to take over this um, this sort of spot as a as a potentially clean energy leader going forward. China is already the largest provider of electric vehicles and buses in the entire world. And they provide us with a lot of our wind turbines and a lot of our solar panels and a lot of our green tech that way. So by no means am I saying that like China is a great civil rights leader or that China is going to be like the climate justice leader we're all looking for. That That's not the argument I'm making at all. But what I am saying is that with this target being released, with the state's on the decline the way they are and where they're set up technologically and from a manufacturing standpoint, um, I think this could really potentially be China um, taking on the world stage in a way that we haven't seen before. Not in the way we haven't seen before. Like that seems, that's a lot to say, um, especially considering it's like, I think I took like one whole international relations class in university. But anyway, this seems like a big deal to me. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a big deal, A, in, in what you said. B, I think it would also you'd start to see places like Europe looking for partners in in taking climate change seriously and yes especially if the United States is is you know is completely giving up on this there's there's not too many other places you can turn to look for someone taking you know look for a large organization large country actually taking it seriously and like to me this this if done effectively and if begun if put through really puts to lie the concept that oil mark the oil marketing that comes out saying that china will lead the demand for for more for more oil in the coming years and it 100 and it is the final it, as if you need another reason why coal is dead stop investing in coal move away from coal it's over it, like there's just no way um so yeah, I, I really I saw someone call this the biggest news uh, since Paris, uh, the Paris Climate Accord on an international climate stage. And, you know, despite Paris's sort of, you know, failure, I do think oh, it's not a failure so far. I think the ratcheting up of, of 
goals could still make it a success in the very long run. But um, I, I, I think you're right. I think this is this is very large news um, at, a, at a time where, you know, a lot of the world's going the opposite direction. Yeah, especially if that peak by 2030 is is a commitment made in earnest. Yeah, for sure. All right, so uh, Gavin Newsom, the man who is currently governor of the burning state of California, is calling for a ban on new gas-fueled vehicles by 2035. As Colby Bermel notes for Politico, California has the world's fifth-largest economy, and over half of its emissions come from the transportation sector. The ban will include the trucks that move ship containers uh, from the major ports. Uh, New medium and heavy-duty trucks, though, will not need to be zero emission until 2045, and then only where feasible. So when I called on Newsom, I think it was last week, (laughs) to ban SUVs, I didn't expect a response so quickly. Uh, I'm going to take this to mean that Newsom definitely listens to the show. Uh, And... Like once, as I mentioned, this is just me repeating myself from from last from the last episode. But it's California making this decision is huge news because California is a market bigger than Canada, you know, and and it is a market that is tapped into the the manufacturing of uh, of of new cars, and many car companies will not create cars unless they could actually sell them in California because it doesn't make sense. In the same way that southern states get all their textbooks from tech from Texas, which is a weird, annoying fact that you probably don't want to know, but it's true. Um, and and so this is one of these things where like it is, it could go down. Like interestingly, this week, weirdly, with all of the bad news, could also go down with. The, like with as the as the week that oil died, you know the fact that you see that the, you know China's coming out with its policies. The fact that you see uh, these sort of standards here coming out in 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 California, you know that's obviously a big statement. And I don't think that what we've seen is enough. But I certainly think that these are two very much more concrete actions than I necessarily expected. You know, going into this week, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you can like put this on your resume and chalk it up to like being a campaign win for you. You did you did real good. But that was great. And also, Mr. Newsom, thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. Yeah. Thanks, um, um but yeah, when it comes to this to this announcement, uh yeah, for all the reasons you said, it's it has the potential to be a really really big deal if it isn't somehow blocked or somehow canceled um, because it will have ramifications all across the auto industry in North America. Um, do I wish there was more emphasis on public transit within that state? Of course. Um, do we wish there was a little more sort of like equity? Forefronted here, there was maybe talk of some subsidization for lower income folks. Yes, but. Um, Nonetheless, this is still a really positive step in the right direction, even if Elon Musk is still a bad person and the Tesla Cybertruck is still hideous. Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head there with the fact that this is not a transportation solution. However, it is certainly a blow to the oil industry, which at this point I'm taking as a win. You know, the the solution to transportation has to be more mass transit and has to be other options. Honestly, just build all the trains. If you want to make me happy, just build a bunch of trains and I will, you know, whichever politician goes out and, you know, builds uh, a actually true rail infrastructure that, that North America so desperately needs will become my favorite person, at least for the moment they do that given you know the nature of politicians they'll probably do some other terrible things because that's the sad reality but that's how i feel and finally the fifth global biodiversity outlook from the un's convention on biological diversity launched on the 15th of september to quote examine the promise progress and prospects for collectively moving our societies to a more sustainable coexistence with nature and it has revealed that humans have failed to reach any of the proposed conservation targets. The Guardian quoted the UN's biodiversity head, Elizabeth Maruma Mrima, as saying, quote, 
the Earth's living systems as a whole are being compromised, and the more humanity exploits nature in unsustainable ways and undermines its contributions to people, the more we undermine our own well-being, security, and prosperity. Yeah. So, you know, to end uh, this segment on a bit of a bit of a bummer, um, we it's amazing how often I find myself having to peel back the layers of different crises. You know, like you, you often you're like, especially now when you're sort of sitting in the sort of, you know, sitting in the middle of a pandemic, which you can feel relatively confident will have subsided in some fashion within the next year or two. And and then are able and then you get back under that and then you run into climate change and you get under that and then you run into, you know, biodiversity loss, although you could flip those one way or the other. And, you know, not to mention wealth inequality and all of these other sort of things. But man, I got to say, biodiversity loss makes me sad. It's one of those things that I'm that just just bums me out. Well, and it bums you up from like from like a visceral standpoint in the sense that it's like we all love animals. We're all sad when animals die, but from like a very real life and death standpoint, in the sense that like our existence is contingent on the health and um, biodiversity of the ecosystems we inhabit, and ecosystems we don't inhabit either. Uh, ones that that humans don't live in still have a huge impact on on the rest of the world. But basically, um, so I didn't read the full report, obviously. I'm sure it's hundreds of pages. I did take a quick glance at the um, summary for policymakers, though. And basically, um, from what I understand, these commitments, these HE targets, I think it's H-E-A-I-C-H-I. Someone please correct me if my pronunciation is wrong. Um, it's like broken down into 60 elements, seven of which um, have been not achieved, but are like kind of green in some capacity, 38 of which are in progress and 13 of which have no progress on them at all. Um, so no country has completely met their targets. Um, no target is completely met. Um, and that's a bummer where I guess we do see a bit of a silver lining is like within this executive summary, it's like they do bless the writers, take a moment to say, like, we still have time. There is still room for work and room to slow and halt and potentially reverse some of these worse effects. Um, obviously not all, obviously not all over the world. Um, but, um, there is still a bit of wiggle room when it comes to biodiversity, even if we have done so poorly in the last decade, because this, this report was looking, I think specifically from 2010 to 2020 or 2011 to 2020. Um, and there is some good news. Uh, the rate of deforestation has fallen a little bit, if only by one third and not in all areas. But deforestation has fallen a little bit um, where good practices have been put in place. Some fish stocks have either remained at their like current lot, current status or have even improved a little bit. Um, and we are seeing expansion of protected areas. There's a bit of progress when it comes to rapid and overwhelming extinction of birds and mammals. Um, but that being said, those are like the few small shining beacons of progress that have been made. Are the coral reefs still largely, I can't swear on air, not doing great? Yes, they are still not doing great. Um, and there's still like not a ton of progress being made on like genetic diversity of like the food that we harvest and the plants that we eat and stuff like that. So um, it's it's not entirely depressing. There is some sort of room for hope there. Um, and there is that insistence that there is still time if we act meaningfully and quickly and countries sort of actually get their butts in gear and invest a, a, a decent amount of money and resources into this effort. Um, but overall, we're not doing too hot. We haven't failed the class yet, but like our parents are being called in for meetings. And before we go to the music break, I just want to say thank you to Simon Threlkeld who uh, pointed out that the Jacobin article we cited two weeks ago made a false claim that uh, Emmanuel Macron accepted only or accepted to consider only three of the um, French Climate Convention, the Citizens' Assembly, uh, on climate change, only three of their proposals. But in fact, he had accepted all except for three. So... We're hoping to look at citizens' assemblies again soon, but there's that. Yeah, 
And so with that, we'll go to the music break and we'll be back with Ali Rougeau from Fridays for Future and talking about the protests that will be going on in Toronto in 20 minutes if you're listening to this live. Uh, to end this show, uh, we are joined by Ali Rougeau, uh, who is a coordinator for Fridays for Future Toronto. And as a, as a preamble to this interview, it is recorded on Tuesday, uh, which of course is both before the throne speech and is on the day of the action we're going to be talking about. So, so Ali, A, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, and, and can you let us know uh, what is what what are you planning or what is happening right now on on friday so what would be happening we're hoping on friday when when you're listening to this is that we're having as part of the global day of action so uh, around the world young people are declaring this global day of climate action um in toronto we are having a socially distanced sit-in to ask for uh, climate justice and um obviously as a response to you know the throne from the speech and um, to ask for a, a just recovery. And so um, what should be happening is that we are going to have people in the streets, so actually on the roads, um, sitting down, social distance, in groups of 20 or 25, not more, um, throughout the space, uh, blocking the roads, and um, staying there for about three hours with uh, speakers and performers, and um, yeah, just occupying that space and making our voices heard once again. Awesome. And, and so you mentioned, and this, of course, is perhaps the weirdest time to be trying to organize, you know, people, you know, there's been conversations ongoing in activist circles the last six months about how to keep momentum going, how to organize in this time. Um, so can you sort of tell me what you guys are, are doing and thinking and the roadblocks you're experiencing towards organizing, you know, during a pandemic? It's definitely been a huge challenge. And I think for us, like this was started with our April strike that was canceled because of COVID. And at that time we knew nothing of COVID or how it was transmitted. So we just canceled the action straight away. And since then, a huge fear was definitely to lose momentum and lose people. Um, but we were lucky and I don't know if it was lucky or we also just really came together and decided that we would use this time to recruit more and reach out to people that we didn't get before. So our team actually grew during the pandemic because we had time to do one-on-one -on -one calls to introduce them fully to the, the project and the idea. Um, so we actually had this recruitment. We had a good, a good start, I would say. Um, and then approaching September 25th, uh, obviously things got rockier because we had to decide um, how to have an action that's social distance, how to make sure we are COVID safe, and that's obviously a big priority, and then how to make sure we're in the law. And um, when you plan this in August, you know, the cases are very low in Toronto, and then as the weeks are approaching, the cases are going up, and so you have to, to change your plans. Um, and yeah, it's been definitely a lot more relying on trained marshals and trained volunteers than we have in the past. Uh, it's asking people to, to bear with us a little more and to respect uh, our asks much more firmly. You know, when we ask them to place themselves somewhere, this is kind of what we say has to go. And it's, we don't like to organize like that, but it's uh, for, for legal reasons kind of mandatory. And then because we have a government that likes to take us by surprise, uh, Premier Doug Ford announced a few days ago that there was going to be new COVID restrictions that don't apply to classrooms, but apply to protests. So we are no longer supposed to have more than 25 people in a group, even social distance. And that's really meant that we had to strategize and we are, are organizing essentially what I call a bunch of little 25 people sit-ins up in the same street, but we are going to be demarcating them with physical obstacles to make sure these groups are respected. So I was going to ask, actually, just the concept of that you can't have more than 25 people in a group, even as a distance, but then how does one group begin and one group end? They're well, it's very difficult. And if you've been to Trinity Bellwoods lately, you could, you could say that it's not clear where social groups end. Um, so, no, def difficult. And even our lawyers that helped us on this um, had no clue. They said, honestly, your guess is as good as mine. That's never good coming from your lawyer. Yeah, yeah, that's not exactly. <laughs> it, and it sort of leaves you, you know, in some ways flying, you know. Totally. 
with, without any sort of map whatsoever. You know, and of course, as you mentioned, what's incredible about this is that this is a restriction being sort of put on, on your organizing, and yet there is nothing being done to say, allow people to commute safely on, on, on subways, which have more than 25 people and are inside. And yet, you know, there's, there's simply nothing, you know, this, the TTC riders, I believe, has actually an, an action right now trying to get the you know, money to be put back into the TTC to allow them to stop overcrowding them. And yet that's mm-hmm. not being, you know, you are being expected to sort of figure this out, you know, with oh, a, sure. almost no guideline whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so clearly, you know, to, to, to both have to go through this and then still be able to bring something forward, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you still are able to, to there is clearly then a uh, strong will to, to not just let this go by, to not just say, you know what, it's, it's a pandemic, this can wait for another year. There's, you know, the, the, the impetus becomes almost louder because of the number of obstacles you have to go through to do it. And so, you know, what do you want to see? What are you, what is this action demanding? This action, you know, is demanding in general just more climate action and more climate justice. But the the focus and the timing of of our action is to not go back to normal. We framed our entire campaign around the concept of not going back and of demanding a just green recovery from uh, the economic crisis that COVID has brought us into. And as you said, you know, we definitely believe that the moment is now. Um, in April, you had you asked us and. We didn't know how long this pandemic was going to last. We could have said, you know, let's ride it out and wait and go back to climate after. But seeing how much it, it has impacted everything and how much people have lost their jobs and how much spending has gone into everything, um, I think we we really see this as a once-in-a-generation opportunity. And missing it seems absolutely impossible. And it would be really heartbreaking to see us going back to normal or back to um you know a 2008-2009 kind of recovery so it's very very clear for us that if this recovery is not just and doesn't have climate in mind um i think for a lot of us this will mean a lot more despair because we don't see where else we can have such a big impact on the whole system yeah yeah and i think that's been sort of the in some ways the thought process behind sort of this push you mentioned of the just recovery you know since it sort of came out which was never will there be a more direct ask from uh civil society and from the from from citizens themselves of the government you know you have to be you know take action take action that aligned with their long-term values but of course you know this concept of just recovery comes in with thousands of definitions. You ask any person involved in this, they probably will give you a slightly different one. You know, there are, of course, the principles that, the, that, that were released that are is backed off of, but everyone's got their own sort of understanding. And, and so I'm wondering if you can sort of tell me what your understanding of, of what, what you mean when you say a just recovery and what that is. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it means um, aiming for an economic recovery, aiming for, you know, people to go back to having jobs and having um, healthy communities that are functioning in a way that, first of all, prevents future crises. So addresses the climate crisis, addresses the homelessness crisis, um, addresses the huge uh, racism that we still have that that should be characterized as a crisis too. So really takes these into account and, and try to make sure that this recovery is a more sustainable one in the sense that it, it just wouldn't um, lead to another crisis short after. And uh, I think to me, it also means completely using this time to completely change certain ways we do things. So um, we've always been advocating for more youth and decision-making powers. And I think this could be a good time if they co-designed the recovery with us to then kind of leave us in places of, of co-designing, you know? So this could be a, a good time for these kind of examples. And similarly, we always talk about retraining folks to go in low carbon economy jobs. This would be the great time. Folks have lost their jobs anyways. Now more than ever, um, it would be a good time to put them in, in sectors that are the sectors of the future. So for me, it really means that, acknowledging that this is not a once in a while crisis, there's gonna be many, many more, and um, we just need to have a longer term plan. That makes all of the sense to me. Um, uh, so so, so this, I have a couple more questions, but uh, you know, people are listening to this on Friday, as you mentioned, is there a way that they can get involved right now? Like if they are listening to this on the radio on Friday, 
uh, is there a way for them to get involved at that moment? And if not, how can they get involved sort of in, in the future? There's definitely a way to get involved if, if you're close to downtown. Um, you know, the, the sit-in is running from noon to three, so there's obviously, there might still be spots around that time. Um, but I do want to encourage folks, especially if folks are, you know, for their own personal reasons, not able to come to an in-person event, which we definitely understand. We have something uh, going on with a, a phone zap online, which we're just going to be guiding people through how to call an, an elected official and who to call and what to say to ask for those just recoveries. Um, I would also really, really encourage people to be on the lookout for any media that covers our event and amplify it because we're honestly taking a big risk. Uh, I'm taking a legal risk as an organizer for this. We're taking, um, obviously, we're still skipping school and we're still taking that risk on top of everything. So if you're able to make our message last and not just be a Friday thing, but that the whole entire following week keeps having echoes of our event, that's a huge way to help us. And you'll probably reach much more than just the streets that we've blocked physically. And, and so how, so this is obviously a, a, a specific response. It's on, it's during climate week. It's, you know, it's the anniversary of the very large March last year, which feels mm -hmm. like a, uh, like a million years ago, imagining that, you know, the scale and scope of that, uh, you know, and, the, the amount of times you, it was so big, people started marching, didn't even know that they were supposed to not be marching. It was like, no, like, to get lost in a crowd now feels like a luxury that, uh, that, is, that is far away. Absolutely. But, um, but in terms of the next few months, like obviously I think, you know, the, the throne speech is, is important and, we'll, and, we'll ha and we just covered it earlier on in the show. But of course the next six months, it lead up to the next budget. And then, and the, and then as, you know, climate people have something said the next few years are super important as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you sort of see the next few months playing out, you know, from now until say you might get a, get a budget in the, in the spring? Well, I'll be honest, depending obviously on the answer we get from, from the throne speech. And I guess we'll know at the time of the protest and then the answer we have to the protest, this might define what we want to do. Um, there is a feeling among some youth and certainly for me, that's a feeling I have is that, um, I'm tired of organizing climate strikes uh, in the sense, not that I don't like to organize these things, but that there's a moment where we're going to have to ramp things up. And if the, um, if, if the change can't come from us politely asking and, and young people really already putting their educations on the line, then I think we're going to have to ramp things up and do more of what we've seen in the past, which was blocking infrastructure and blocking business as usual in this physical sense. It's not something we want to do because we know it impacts people more. Um, it's something that puts us at risk much more ourselves personally. But, you know, when I see that, that clock, that world clock that says we have seven years until we <laughs> essentially blast through our carbon budget, um, I, I, it's hard for us to even think of the legal risks or the risks on our future career because we feel like we don't have that <laughs> anyways. So um, it's not a threat, but it's definitely a warning to governments that, um, as they continue to ignore the peaceful actions, they're fueling us to do actions that are more and more um, defying authority. And, and that's something that we have in mind, honestly. Yeah, yeah, and I'm struck by the amount of energy being, you know, I don't want to say wasted in the term of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that, that this organizing does not, does, is not important and necessary, but wasted in the terms of the energy that young people in society has to do good, that instead of being able to be leveraged into, you know, this energy could be used organizing, you know, actual green jobs and actual work, instead is being used to tell people to like, allow you know to create systems where that's possible mm -hmm. you know, I, I like i I've, I've had a similar thought uh that you sort of referenced there of like i'm i'm tired uh, like if, if i was given a roadmap towards actually zero carbon and the only thing in front of us was how hard can we work i think you would see an overwhelming response towards that an overwhelming response work on that it feel that would feel so freeing to be able to actually work on the actual problem rather than working on the you know on the on the on the on the blocks to even get a plan in place 
I totally agree. And as someone that's graduating university within the year, it feels awful that when I'm looking at potential careers, I would love to say I want to use my economics skills to go into redesigning an economic system. But instead, I'm actually thinking I want to use my protest skills to go into more mobilization. This is not the way I saw my life. And I don't think that's what people want to hear when they hear young people dreaming about their future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and here's all those people who are yeah, like yourself having to find, taking the skills that they that they have in place that would be building skills and having to use them instead to you know to again build communities and organizing but that infrastructure exists that can really that you know give us the go-ahead and let people actually start building the future you know you know and even, even hopefully allowing to connect and let them you know you personally co-design it as well right um so 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 people out there who are hearing this, you know, I think Friday's Future has done a great job in sort of getting some understanding. People, I think, know, know about the concept. However, you know, never, there, never can you do enough outreach and enough explanation until you haven't reached someone new and someone different. So if people want to get involved in the Friday's Future movement, how can they? I always love that question because we actually are always recruiting more folks. Um, we use a lot of social media, obviously, and, and Fridays for Future Toronto is on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We have a website. But I think more generally, um, I would push especially folks that are maybe no longer youth to not try as much to join the Fridays for Future, but joining the groups that are supporting us so much. So um, honestly, groups like Toronto 350, groups like Climate Fast, uh, groups like Greenpeace, the David Suzuki Foundation, whether you can support them financially or with your time and energy and skills, they are usually the first adult allies we go to when we have an issue that we can't deal with ourselves. So replenishing those groups is going to help us uh, a lot more. And then obviously it's, uh, if you can, opening your wallets. We have very little funds, but we have a lot of energy. So we do appreciate that support. And uh, otherwise opening your networks, inviting us to speak at, even if it's your company, um, your school, if you're an instructor or staff in the academic sectors, those are huge ways to help us because once again, we have the energy, but we don't have the money or the networks. So we could definitely use support in that sense. Uh, wonderful. And so my last question uh, is, is, to, is to do exactly that. Uh, you know, we have a, a network of this radio show. And so if you had a, a message to give out to, to anyone listening, uh, what would it be? I think it would be that um, climate change was always studied as a future problem. And that's uh, still a reality. But right now we're experiencing climate change as we go. And so I would really encourage people to be unapologetical in the way they talk about climate change, never feel like it's a fringe thing, never think, think it's a, something just for environmentalists. Bring it up everywhere you can. Be that annoying person as much as you can because you'll be doing yourself and us a great service by just constantly talking about climate, just like we constantly talk about you know, other political things or the weather, really. <laughs>